0: Welcome to the Swamp Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede.
1: I am
2: Boomer. I'm Allie.
0: And we are recording in three separate locations all over the country. We're in New Orleans, Austin, and Portland today. Mostly thanks to Allie, we're expanding. Allie has not been on this show in years. She used to write for the website, and she is back in the fold. Very excited to have you here.
2: Thank you. And
0: you uh, you already had a piece that you wrote for the website uh, a couple weeks ago. You wrote about uh, the Manchurian Candidate.
2: Yeah, I did. I kind of got a little too serious, but it, it was fun.
0: I think calling out a movie uh, that's half a century old for its like dusty politics is a worthwhile exercise. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. It seems to deserve it. Yeah.
2: Like I said, people keep talking about it or kept talking about it. And I was like, I haven't seen this. And then I saw it and I was like, why? I don't know, Y'all. <laughs> y'all.
0: The images from it looked really um, striking, at least, though. Like, it looked like it was a beautiful image, even if the uh, politics were shaky.
2: Yeah, it looks really good.
0: Well, we usually uh, kick off these podcasts asking what recent movies you've been watching. Have you you seen anything else that stood out to you besides The Manchurian Candidate?
2: So, I did watch um, Touch of Zin, which is, like, this old um, Chinese, like, well, old, quote unquote. It's from the 70s. It's like a Wuxia movie. So it's like a mixture of Kung Fu and like Chinese history and warriors and stuff. But it's really great. It's really beautiful. So
0: I saw that restored at the Broad Theater a couple years oh, ago. Oh,
2: nice.
0: They had like a um, tea service what? introduction to it, which was really cute. And yeah, it's very like psychedelic, right? which I did not know to expect from that genre.
2: Yeah, I really, really enjoyed that.
0: Have you seen a lot of other wuxia films?
2: So, I would say, you know, my knowledge is more just like Crashing Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the like, all of those, which I love, and, you know, I really enjoy a lot of martial arts and the Kung Fu movie stuff, so I'm hoping to to watch a lot more.
0: I've been trying to get more into it. I I started watching the movies of this this woman, uh, Pearl Chang.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And her stuff is kind of the same as... Touch of Zen, the like, guy like King Hu, I guess, is yeah. the director. But Pearl Chang's stuff is like, half the time, it's like 90 minutes instead of three hours, and they're really over-the-top like funny, Yeah. which I don't think I could say that about Touch of Zen. No,
2: I mean, there's some funny parts, but no, it's not a comedy. I've
0: been trying to get more into those uh, through her stuff. It, it seems like there's a lot of like classics that are just like completely outside my radar.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure some of them haven't made it over here because of a lot of the cultural stuff, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. What have you been watching Boomer?
1: Well, I have been checking out a lot of really terrible possession films. (laughs) I watched demonic from 2015 directed by Will Cannon, which was shot in and around Baton Rouge back in 2013. I, yeah, it's not very good. It's got a cast that's pretty respectable. It's got Maria Bello, Frank Grillo, Cody Horn, who was in Magic Mike. She was the love interest in that. This might be completely crazy, but I seem to recall that someone I knew, or this might be completely inaccurate, but I seem to remember that somebody that I knew and was in classes with at LSU wrote a script that's pretty similar to the movie. So it might actually have been at least purchased from someone that I knew. The person who's credited as the writer is a screenwriter from LA or from Connecticut who moved to Orlando and then LA. But it also just might be that this is one of the most basic possession plots that I've ever seen. It's not very good. (laughs) It's fine, but it's like, has very direct to cable vibes. If it weren't for like Frank Grillo and Maria Bello being in it, it feels like it would be an IFC Midnight movie. And who knows, maybe it actually was. But I also watched one called The Vatican Tapes, which is I think also from 2015. It's got Michael Pena in it and DeGray Scott, but stars Olivia Taylor Dudley, who I know mostly as Alice from the television show The Magicians. So after that show came to an end last year, I was kind of curious about the other films that members of the cast had made. So I had added this to my Netflix queue some time ago. If demonic is like the most basic demon in a haunted house story you've ever seen, the Vatican tapes is very much the most basic young woman possessed by the demon to become the antichrist story that you've ever seen. They're both Hmm. such like DVD bargain bin movies, which is a shame because both of them have casts that I think deserve uh, better than that. I also saw 2017, 2018 Canadian horror movie called devil's gate. It's got Jonathan Frakes in it very briefly. as (laughs) like, yeah, right. He's like a small town sheriff somewhere in like Nevada. And Milo Ventimiglia is a father who has set up all of these like booby traps around his farm. Um, And an actress that I've never seen before, comes to town to investigate the disappearance of Milo Ventimiglia's wife. And she's assisted by a deputy played by one of the Ashmore brothers. I'm going to say, I think it's Sean, but I can never quite remember. I mean, they they are truly twins. I can't quite tell them apart. And it is a movie that is really well shot. Like, it looks great, but there's just not that much to it narratively. I think that it would have worked really well as a short, but as a feature length, it gets a little, it drags a little at times, even though it's, it, it falls short of 90 minutes. But the basic conceit of it is that there are these alien abductions happening out here in this area, and the Mila Ventimiglia character attributes them to uh, spiritual, supernatural beings. It's fine, but I wouldn't uh, recommend it. But I did see two that I would recommend. Um, The first is called What Keeps You Alive. Um, I was going to do copy on it for the site. But I was waiting until I had finished watching this other movie, which is also in sort of the same vein, called Elizabeth Harvest. Uh, But then I actually looked it up, and Brittany watched Elizabeth Harvest and did a review of it a few years back. It was a very positive review. It's great. I really enjoyed it. Um, So I watched that one. I... Thought it was really good. It's got Carla Gugino in it, who I absolutely adore in everything. Elizabeth Harvest is a Blackbeard story, right? It's an update on the Bluebeard. Bluebeard. Yes, I'm sorry. It's the Bluebeard story about, you know, the Bluebeard and his wives, and he kills his wives. And What Keeps You Alive is actually very similar. Uh, it came out in two, 2018. Uh was directed by Colin Minahan. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Starring uh, Hannah Emily Anderson and Brittany Allen. And it is so good. It has some last act plotting problems. In the sense that our uh, final girl makes some very obvious mistakes. The way that you would often be like, no, why are you doing it? You get out of there. Don't go back. But overall, it works really well. It's... um these two women who are celebrating their one year wedding anniversary go out to the lake house where one of them grew up and the bride sort of comes to starts to realize that her wife is pulling a bluebeard kind of thing. Oh, where she marries these women and then lures them out to the house. At one point she finds like a box full of trinkets that are identical to the trinkets that she had or a trinket that she had herself received uh, it's really, really good. It has a really strange like audience rating score, but it's really good. I-, I think it has really strong performances throughout and it's the tension is really palpable. But there are other times where it also gets extremely surreal and like visually bizarre. For instance, after there's a killing at one point, the killer makes her wife sort of do cleanup and it's all done under blacklight while, you know, the Moonlight Sonata plays. Like, it's not afraid to get a little weird with it, despite being a pretty straightforward slasher movie otherwise. So I really appreciated that.
0: I mean, yeah, that's that's the hook for me.
2: Yeah, that sounds great.
1: It's on Netflix. I can't recommend it more highly. It's What Keeps You Alive.
0: You know, Anna Biller is working on a Bluebeard adaptation. That's like her next movie after The Love Witch that she's been trying to get off the ground. Oh, really? Huh. And also, Brittany would probably be really tickled if we ever did uh, Elizabeth Harvest on here. Because I know she loves that movie and does not have anyone else to talk to about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's the only person I've ever heard mention that movie.
1: It's really you. good. Oh, uh, I misspoke though. What Keeps You Alive. I watched it because it actually was one of those like leaving Netflix soon movies, but it is currently on shutter. Oh, it is on shutter though. So you can still check it out if you are subscribed to that. And there's, it's like a $5 rental other places. But yeah, I would, I would love to talk Elizabeth Harvest at length, but What Keeps You Alive was really, really good. That's my recommendation this week.
0: Well, I've been, um, trying to experience a safe Mardi Gras through the movies this week (laughs) there's like it's a really weird vibe here right now because like I want to commemorate the holiday in some way um, because it's like literally the only holiday I care about and there's just no safe way to do it every time I think I come up with like something I could do outside that might be okay on Fat Tuesday like I see you know, some crowd being shamed for gathering in front of a house floater on Bourbon Street, and and I just shrink back into my shell. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't <laughs> go anywhere, do anything. But I have watched a couple movies that are like carnival themed to try to at least acknowledge that this is normally when I'd be celebrating. One of them I watched. They just added a bunch of these uh, Marlena Dietrich movies to Criterion Channel, uh, like her collaborations with von Sternberg, which are like the ones that made her famous more or less. I watched one of the ones that got terrible reviews. Like this is towards the end of their collaboration. I'm not doing my proper homework and watching the classics. She did this movie in 1935 called the devil is a woman and it's set during Spanish carnival. So there's like a lot of really beautiful, like old Hollywood studio lot sets with just like hundreds of extras wearing like paper mache masks and throwing streamers everywhere and just being drunken fools in the background while she plays like a femme fatale character that like drains men's pocketbooks for her own amusement and like ruins lives because she's bored.
2: You know, like you do.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that femme fatale trope. I know it's like misogynistic in a lot of ways, but it's so fun. <laughs> like it's a trope that's been around as long as movies have, like this woman who's just like amusing herself by like ruining people's lives.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I always think it's like time for it to get an update but
0: good for her though right yeah (laughs) it is good for her cinema
2: yeah exactly yeah that's true
0: the weird thing about this one and maybe this is why it's not one of her like more beloved roles is instead of playing it like a sultry femme fatale character she's almost playing it like lucille ball like sitcom like she's like really over the top and pouty and is just like obviously having a laugh Uh, At these men's expense as they're like throwing money and adoration at her feet. and She's like, I obviously don't love you. I'm just going to spend your money. And they do it anyway. And she, you know, wears beautiful gowns and just gallivants around this uh, Spanish carnival backdrop. So I don't know. Probably not the best Dietrich von Sternberg movie, but still a really fun carnival movie. The one that was really good, though, and really surprised me was Mardi Gras Massacre from 1978. Tell
1: me everything. Tell us
0: everything.
2: Yeah, I was going to say I'm hooked by the title
0: this has like a reputation of being one of the worst movies of all time. And I kind of get it on one level. It's about this man who ritualistically murders prostitutes in the French quarter. He walks into a bar. He does this uh, as a cycle. He walks into a bar and he asks um, any sex worker that'll talk to him. Who's the most evil woman in this bar? And he like finds that woman and then pays her to go back to his French quarter apartment. He ties her to a table And then sacrifices them to his Aztec god uh, as like punishment for her sexual sins and as like an offer to this like religious figure. And this happens about four different times and the gore in these scenes are exactly the same (laughs) to the point where I thought that when he was like removing their organs I thought that. It was the same shot repeated until about the third one, where it was like obvious that the the boobs on the dummy were like different than the other boobs to match the actor. It was like disemboweling. I was like, why? Why would you bother? Uh, It looks exactly the same. Otherwise, you built like two props that look identical. Otherwise,
2: he knows what the audience is focusing on. Right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: So I pulled up Mardi Gras Massacre to look at it. Uh, online and it looks like it is a semi-sequel to blood feast huh. which i have never seen but only know through its spiritual remake blood diner directed by jackie kong but as you were describing kind of the repetitiveness of the killings and especially the fact that it's a sacrifice to a goddess immediately made me think of blood diner so I guess that makes. sense. I love sense.
0: Blood Diner. This one's a lot more like Blood Feast, though. It is like very Ooh. limited. Like the sets and everything are very like straightforward and cheap. Uh-huh. Where, where Blood Diner is more like a live-action cartoon that like just goes all over the place, zany Jackie Kong chaos. I'd also liken this to Manos: The Hands of Fate. Like it's about that level on a Ooh. budget. Yikes. <laughs> okay, but that's me getting all the stuff that's like bad out of the way. This movie's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> the people solving this crime are um this like sex worker who you know was a friend with one of the victims and this cop who's like interrogating her and they're gonna like team up to figure out who's doing this the audience already knows it's not like a mystery but they get distracted by like falling in love and going on these dates so they're going these like really cute dates on the river walk and like smearing ice cream on each other's noses <laughs> while like the matches like rolls by in the background. <laughs> And I just started to, like, be distracted by how cute the movie was, even though, like, the central, like, ritualistic murders are very misogynist and, you know, that gross blood feast feeling. And the more time they spend around the city, uh, there's, like, more queer people just sort of around and not getting made fun of, which feels very weird for the 1970s. And by the end, there's a lot of, like, On the ground footage in Mardi Gras crowds, you know, shot candid, like walking through just like tons and tons of people in the quarter. And I was just really in love by the end with just like how handmade the movie feels. Even though the dates with the cop are cute at first, it ends up being really strongly anti-cop, which is great. The prostitute he's dating ends up, like, going on this rant about how he's, like, a despicable fucking human being (laughs) and a total pig. And that's kind of how the movie goes in general, too. Like, you start off, like, questioning its moral compass Um, in a way a lot of, like, 70s grindhouse stuff is gross. But by the end, it gave me, like, a really heartfelt, like, regional filmmaking feeling. Like, I, I feel like anyone with an affinity for like new orleans this is like our manos the hands of fate like this is uh, a very locally flavored version of that style of filmmaking and i ended up loving it
2: yeah i'm definitely, I'm definitely gonna check that out
0: it's equal parts gross and cute which i feel like uh, mardi gras can be that as well it's like a sleazy cheesy holiday in a lot of ways and can be really sinister but it's also like this like communal handmade beautiful event uh, as well I think the movie captures that even if by mistake. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Since Joan Lindsay
1: wrote the book and Peter Weir made the movie. Miranda turned that last corner, the
0: question at Hanging Rock has been asked every day for over 30 years. What happened here?
2: Where did those girls go? Why is this place so mysterious?
0: So because we're ignoring Mardi Gras in a lot of ways, um, we have been doing Valentine's Day themed episodes on the show recently. We just did a rom-com episode last week. And I recently watched a movie that was set on Valentine's Day. The classic Australian... What would you call this? Like a cosmic horror? Uh, picnic and Hanging Rock.
1: It's characterized as a mystery film, which I guess it technically sure. is exactly that. <laughs> yeah, I was but- going to say,
2: it's it's a mystery to to lump in with anything, really. It's a thriller. It's like a, it's a stay at the the park. It's it's like cosmic. It's got like X-File vibes, but also like pre-X-Files. I don't know. It's a lot going on and I love it.
1: It really does. uh, It is literally a mystery film in that, like, when you hear that, you expect, oh, a mystery, and there's going to be a solution. But it is not that at all. You never know what happened. It is just a mystery and nothing else, which I actually think is great.
0: Yeah, there's uh, a character says, like, there's some questions got answers and some doesn't. This movie does not have answers uh, at all. (laughs) It just is a question. So, Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, 1975, I believe, uh, directed by Peter Weir. It's an adaptation of a novel by Joan Lindsay about this incident in 1900 in like rural Australia. This small group of girls at a boarding school disappear while at a picnic um, near a rock formation, <laughs> Hanging Rock. Joan Lindsay... Maintained mostly because it was good press, I believe, that this was a real incident uh, (laughs) that happened, (laughs) that these actual real-life girls just disappeared from the face of the earth. In the movie and in the novel, there's no answer to what happened to them. Everyone assumes that they were attacked by a man and molested. Uh, That is not confirmed in any way. If anything, the movie constantly undercuts that theory just by adding weird details, like... One of the girls who did not disappear uh, saw a red cloud, which kind of reads as like a UFO almost. There's also just these like strange howling winds throughout the film that like suggest something like eerie and like otherworldly is happening. And to me, the whole thing just feels like a dream. Even just trying to do a plot synopsis is difficult because it's hard to remember details from it as if I am remembering a dream.
1: Yes. (laughs) I wanted to say something about that uh, actually because. This was not my first time watching this movie. I have seen this before, but as I was watching it, I felt like Irma. Because there's the scene where they're like, Irma, what happened up there? And she cannot answer them. And there were scenes in this movie that, despite the fact that I had seen it before, were completely new to me. (laughs) It was like I had my own picnic at Hanging Rock experience since the the time that I watched this movie the first time.
2: Yeah, I can say that I also... I also had that experience cuz I I had watched it before as well and I was like I don't remember this. It's almost hypnotizing in that way.
0: And the thing about it is like I knew from its reputation that it was going to be eerie and dreamlike like that was understood. What I did not know was that this was going to be so gay. Yes. Like the movie <laughs> <laughs> it starts on Valentine's Day where like all these girls at the boarding school are trading valentines and it's cute and you're like okay sometimes that kind of like Romance like same gender romance is allowed between girls that age because it's like seem as harmless But then there's that one character sarah who is an orphan and not as like well off as the other girls at the school and her romantic obsession with miranda who is the If this was like an american movie in like the 90s She would be like the head cheerleader in the school like everyone in the community is in awe of miranda's beauty and like brilliance Um, And Sarah takes that a step further where she's like romantically obsessed with Miranda and just singularly fixated on her presence. So when Miranda disappears, Sarah's life unravels even more so than everyone else in that community. She is like a more tragic figure than the other people who actually disappeared and something like unexplainable happened to. So I don't know. I kind of wanted to ask y'all. I mean, you already touched on a little bit like. I know this is a favorite movie of Allie's. Um when I mentioned that I had watched this recently, Boomer said, "Ooh, I want to talk about that on the podcast." Which was actually a godsend because thinking about writing about this instead of talking it out sounds like very daunting. Like <laughs> I don't know how to put anything about this movie into like solid, concrete words. Like it, it it is more of a feeling than it is anything else. So yeah, what what is it about Hanging Rock
1: that sticks with you? So one thing that I wanted to say is this was also a movie that was frequently, we've talked about this a little bit before you and I, Brandon, but Maitland McDonough, who is a film critic. um, She wrote like, she literally wrote the Argento book. There was a column that she used to do for the TV guide website where people would write in and be like, Oh, I remember this movie from my childhood, but I can't remember the title of it. And there were some that popped up over and over again, and this was one of them it was like legend of boggy boggy creek bad ronald and picnic at hanging rock because it clearly left an impression on like a lot of people who probably saw it i would guess on pbs but also had no way of trying to recollect it in such a way that they could find it again which makes total sense <laughs> to me i love that there's no explanation I know that it's come up before in discussions just between us that about what I like and what I want out of a horror movie and how I generally want like a rational explanation as opposed to a supernatural one, but no explanation is even better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think this movie is almost explicitly supernatural, but that might be me just reaching for what I like to see in movies. (laughs) Um, Is it though?
2: I mean, you know, we have a lot of like sinister human figures in this so it makes you go either way in some ways like in my head at least like mrs appleyard she is unhinged you know and just her talking at the end about um mrs craw like did she do this you know (laughs) just because of the way she was talking about it but at the same time you know there's no answer and like i said we have like the proto like x-files vibes with the whooshing and the like red cloud. So <laughs> like I like that it can go either way. Like so many really great mysteries, you know. The the ambiguity is fun.
1: I feel like the closest we get is everybody in the town talks about it. And at one point there is like a discussion about weird lights over a farm along with that discussion of the red cloud where it's like, "Oh, this is essentially an alien abduction story that's taking place in a time period in which the characters have no vocabulary to express that that is what has happened to them. And there is a certain amount of like European colonialism being discussed. You have the sort of uh, the nephew character who finds Irma or almost finds Irma, you know, he's having that conversation with the colonel's, livery man or whatever. And he says, you know, you wouldn't understand it. You're Australians, but I'm English and it means something different to me. And in a way, every narrative that is about alien abductions is a colonial narrative because it is the great modern horror fear of what could happen. Because as a species we know how those stories end, especially because as those of us who are mostly descended from Europeans know, uh, civilizations end because of an outside power colonizing and taking something away. And so there does seem to be something ancient and primordial going on at Hanging Rock itself because of, you know, they talk about tectonic plates and magma and everything, but there's also something going on that seems to be about European fears of being colonized themselves, or, I don't know if anybody else got that vibe.
2: Yeah, I definitely got that vibe. It, I mean, it's hard to think about you know stories in colonial countries and not sort of think about, oh man, there are only like white people and British people here in a place that had a horrifying history with their Aboriginal population. So it's there. That's definitely part of the horror of it.
0: There's like some ironic humor too, and they're like traveling to the rock in the early scenes, um, before the abduction happens or the disappearance, where the girls are like musing about how the rock has been there for you know centuries and it's just been waiting there for us to enjoy a picnic at its at its base, which is really funny. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the um, just the eerie like shots of just the rock. With the uh, sort of like spooky music in the background, very ambient sounds. And the longer you stare at it, you start to see like faces, faces in the rock. Yes, Yeah. And there's definitely a contrast between like natural danger and like these like
1: modern women visiting that space. Yeah. But there is something that is the headmistress that you were saying, Ali. She is unhinged. And so are all of her subordinates. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's, I mean, Mademoiselle is just kind of useless, but especially Miss Lumley with her horrifying, like, torture, essentially, of Sarah as she puts her on the rack to straighten out her posture. What's that about?
2: Yeah. I was just thinking of their treatment of Sarah and, you know, Sarah's obvious, like, infatuation with Miranda you know, I can't help but think, like, oh, part of this is from that. Oh, for and, sure. you know, so many of the old, you know, therapies and current, like, you know, conversion therapies are just forms of torture, especially for young people. So, you know, it kind of was an like, echo of that in some ways.
0: I mean, Sarah has nothing going right for her as far as, like, fitting in. Like, she's poor... She's gay. (laughs) She is more interested in writing poetry than she is in doing any of her schoolwork. Like, she is not fitting in in any slot that would, like, make it easy for her. Um, And I think a lot of the movie's sympathies are with her specifically. Like, she is the closest you get to, like, an anchor character, which ultimately makes the movie, like, really fucked up and sad, even though it is, like, fun to, like, parse through the mystery and stuff. Like, I feel more like Gravitas in her, like story than i do in the girls who disappeared i'm interested in the mystery of of the disappearance but like her sort of like back and forth with the headmistress is a lot more
1: like fucked up and like upsetting to me i also think that the storyline itself seems to be almost like a parody of european literature at least in certain points uh especially like british literature because what is the name of that author that whose movies you just watched Brandon, uh, the Francis, Francis Eliza Hodgson Francis Hodgson Burnett, right? So in any of those novels, if there's a character who is missing their family and somewhere else out there the brother is also missing this like long-lost child, which is clearly what's happening with the cons- the Colonel's liveryman and Sarah. That he she is his younger sister that he dreams about. But unlike a British novel, like one that would be by Frances Burnett, where they would eventually reconnect, and that would be sort of like the happy end to that story, it's cl- it's clearly foreshadowing something like that happening, and then just pulling the rug out from under you by having Sarah commit suicide before they can reunite, or even before her patron sends payment for her uh, tuition.
0: I did happen to watch this like the same week I watched The Secret Garden for the first time, um, and that sort of immersion in like the natural world uh, in both films did not escape me. Like I, I do think that connection is legit.
1: like it's it's a story that's waiting there, right? you You spend that time waiting as much as you can in a film whose narrative is as fluid as this one, waiting for Sarah and her brother to finally meet again and have this happy reunion. And that is just completely cut short. Well, they do meet in a dream, which is
0: interesting, considering so much of the movies like about the dream world yeah. and, you know, the eeriness between planes and all that
2: well it's like subverting so many stories so usually with the mystery we have a culprit it's found we have detectives they solve the crime usually in separated siblings they find each other they have the happy reunion it's like we don't get any of that at all it's more replaced with the realistic sort of some crimes are never solved people never find each other
0: and when we hear that she visited him in a dream that's when we know that she's dead yeah like that's that's not a happy reunion in any way like oh shit she's gone
1: it does make me wonder if the novel has more of that because there's an awful lot that happens in this film that's just color it's just character color you know there's the jackie weaver character many like the sort of housekeeper And she has that whole relationship with that man. And we see them together in their intimate moments as they sort of talk about what happened to the girls. And a lot of people around town just sort of having conversations like that. And it feels like maybe there was more of that in the novel where there's a lot more intricate relationships between all the characters in the small town. And the way that that just ended up abstracted into this film contributes to the dreamlike quality, but I don't know.
0: I am also curious about the tone of the novel and like how much of the supernatural hinting is in that as well, because people do genuinely believe that this is a real incident. I mean, right. maybe not so much anymore, but I was watching clips on YouTube like of. Maybe 15 years ago, like not that long ago, people like visiting Hanging Rock and like trying to solve the mystery as like a act of tourism, which is wild. And the movie starts and ends kind of like making it almost like a true crime thing. Like, um, you know, it ends with like the voiceover of like a journalist presenting cold, hard facts of the case. And it starts with the same kind of warning you would get with like... uh texas chainsaw massacre like the blair witch project where they kind of frame it as like a real thing that happened and it's so bizarre to picture someone approaching this that way when like the movie is so much about like dream logic and like eerie otherworldly influences i am curious if the novel is more like a straightforward crime thriller mystery presentation of these same like events or not
1: i do know that in the original version of the novel prior to publication, there was a final chapter that explained <laughs> that did solve the mystery, Boom! Uh, oh. and then they cut it before <laughs> publication. So I, I saw that on the Wikipedia page and just just scrolled past it. I was like, I don't want to know. I don't really want to know.
0: Never tell yeah. me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh,
1: to each their own. If you want to find that, uh, listeners, um, you can Google it yourself. But don't tell but us. We won't, we won't spoil that here.
0: I'm also worried that the TV show would do that as well, right?
1: I don't know. I haven't seen it.
2: I haven't watched it either. I don't know either, but it just seems like
0: TV seems like less friendly to ambiguity. If you're going to keep a mystery going for like 10, 12 hours, uh, I don't know if you could just do this sort of like wishy-washy dream logic plotting in the same way.
2: I mean- I guess David Lynch would like a word, um, but <laughs> not everybody's David Lynch, obviously. I
0: did not finish that. <laughs> I hated Twin Weeks The Return, uh, probably for those exact same reasons. I quit after about nine episodes. I was like, I'm not loving this the way that everyone else is. So maybe it's just my problem as an audience. I don't no, know.
2: No, no. I know a lot of people who stopped. They were just like, this is not, it's not the same. And <laughs> it's definitely weirder and darker somehow.
0: It is kind of a cliche too, to call something Lynchian, but I don't think in this case it would be. No. Like, this is around the time you would have been in, like, art school, right? Yeah. I could see this being an influence on his work.
2: I feel like you get a lot of stuff like this all over the 70s. I mean, we were just talking about Touch of Zen and how it has that very, like, psychedelic thing going on, and it's preoccupied with, like, surroundings and nature a lot, too. There's just this, like, very 70s-ness that is very much in its favor as well for the mystery aspect of it. That's just preoccupied with the environment more than the plot.
0: I'd say this one and Touch of Zen 2 are just sort of like laid back. Yeah. um, And also just like overwhelmed by the sun. Like, Yeah, the sun. (laughs) It it does have that feeling... It has that feeling of like taking a nap directly in the sunlight and waking up dazed and not being able to see straight. Both of those movies daze you in kind of the same way.
1: This is such a bizarre reference, but it makes me think of the episode of Pete and Pete where little Pete and all of his friends decide to stay up for as long as they can in rebellion <laughs> against the concept of bedtime. And there's a scene where like seven or eight year old Heather Matarazzo, who has been kept up for days it's just like touching the ground over and over because it's dewy because it's morning and she's just like why is the ground wet i don't remember remember it raining why is the ground wet and it's such a an accurate and strong representation of like complete and utter disorientation that i think about it every time that i see something like this where the characters are just completely discombobulated no idea where they are they're running around this rocky area where everything looks the same. There was something that was really fascinating about Miss McGraw. Oh, I'm not yeah, really yeah. sure what we're supposed to make of that, which is that like she disappears too, but she doesn't leave with the girls, I and mean, we never even see her go into the mountains.
2: No, she she leaves afterwards, and Edith crosses paths with her doesn't oh God, it i had
1: my own once again picnic at hanging rock moment where it's like <laughs> i would i know i saw it
2: yes
0: but the movie does that to fuck with you though right because like one of the girls who disappeared comes back but not the rest of them what are you supposed to make of that any footing you try to get in like trying to create a pattern or logic out of it is just completely disrupted
1: there's a lot of horse girl happening here
2: yeah oh yeah definitely.
1: <laughs> where it has become part of like the narrative of abduction stories that time I guess it's just part of like the narrative of oh if they've been space they must be able to bend time or whatever these you know visitors but like the the whole everybody's watches stopping the concept of this like strange area where time loses meaning and people seem to there's the weird thing at the end which was the only like visual choice i didn't like and it seems really dated to me where everything's very like shuddery
0: that choppy Mm -hmm. frame rate Mm -hmm. yeah that
1: choppy frame rate that does sort of at the same time that it's like oh look every single frame is composed Mm -hmm. like you know a painting and also is like oh the time is strange here here's this like panoramic portrait of all of these people in this one moment but time is frozen
0: I like that in concept I hate that effect I associate it with like 90s camcorders uh, and it always bothers me and stuff it, it, it bothered me in that Suspiria remake it bothered me in Julie Dash's film Daughters of the Dust I like both of those movies a lot and I get stuck on those frame rate choices for some reason <laughs> It just it just does not feel cinematic to me I mean, this is a cheap movie too. Like, it's not like the budget of this movie is like crazy huge, was it? Yeah, I think so.
1: It does not look cheap to me.
2: I was gonna say oh, it's it beautiful. is beautiful, and I'm glad that you brought up the art, like everything being a painting, especially since I feel like any any time somebody's reading a book, it's an art book and or math book in the case of Miss McCraw. But there's a lot of people <laughs> reading art books, and there's the comparison of Miranda to Botticelli's. Uh, cherubs yeah I don't know I just found that really interesting and you know there's a bunch of very you know renaissance looking paintings on the wall in the school and I thought about it you know as you were saying and I'm like yeah there's just like this art thing going on and I mean the movie in general is I guess as people would say aesthetic just generally
0: it kind of has to be right because like not a lot happens it's mostly just people kind of scratching their heads about this thing that no one can make sense of yeah
2: and I guess oh, I you know, I guess the art thing, like we don't know what happened in the mind of an artist years ago. We don't know how what happened when these girls disappeared, you know. It's all interpretation, I guess, is a good connection there, even if it wasn't intended. But
0: Well, I mean the one of the very first images is I think Miranda brushing her hair in a mirror, and we see Sarah watching her do that in another mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like right out the gate, like the framing is just like insanely layered. And you get those like wonderful shots of all the girls doing each other's corsets. I-, I just love the immersion in this world too. It feels very like overwhelming with the nature and all the white lace and everything, and all the valentines
1: trading.
2: Oh, those Valentine's Day cards! I- all the art on those Valentine's Day cards are so good.
1: Yeah, the set dressing is sumptuous, just sumptuous. Miss Applewood's office is intense. Yes,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and the rock itself, like that's just good location shooting. That is a very like photographable rock. I can look at it all day It just shoots it from so many angles. And it's like, look at this. Isn't that interesting? And just sort of hangs out there and it, d- it does feel powerful, not menacing in any way, just sort of like ancient and like foreboding.
1: Uh, so apparently hanging rock is itself, was itself a place that was explicitly colonized. There were traditional occupants on the land who were forced out of it in the middle of the 18th, the middle of the 19th century. So like 50 ish years prior to this story taking place. And within those 50 years, it had, the settlers had colonized it so much that it had just become a place of recreation and tourism. But there were people living there, which is, I think, what sort of contributes to the possibility that it is just like a supernatural, non extraterrestrial, like yeah. force. That there's something maybe ancestral or just what was worshipped by the people who were there. And now it's completely inexplicable to these white colonizers because they don't even have anyone to tell them what happened because they've driven them out. The only non-white characters are a couple of aborigine guides that they bring in at, at one point to help them like tour the rock, and they still don't find anything.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like that's the running theory Like instantly. Um, among people who aren't there like people who are just like hearing the gossip or like well of course indigenous people did this like of course like oh. a man was around hmm. all i know is that uh anytime a character has like a, a a very solid like oh obviously a man did this to these girls theory i'm like that's not it that's not what happened <laughs> like that's my only like <laughs> Argument for it being, like, a supernatural event is, like, hearing someone theorize something solid, I'm like, no, that's incorrect.
2: Yeah, it does play very much into, like, talking about aboriginals and men doing it. It plays very much into the whole, you know, the American indigenous people here trope of stealing the white women, you know, that drove so much fear here.
0: Especially since Miranda is presented as this, like, beautiful, pristine object that everyone loved to gaze at. Yes.
1: I didn't think about that. And I like that. I I like that point of view that to my mind, the people who assumed that they were captured or attacked by a man, I never sort of thought about that they were explicitly invoking like a colonialist boogeyman of indigenous people. But I thought that it was also interesting the way that this like horrific event became like a social event where everybody's turning out for the search party and <laughs> yeah. including like people's mamas and wives who are just hanging out on blankets and socializing and clearly like having a good time while the men folk search for these girls the
2: photographer just purposely posing people
1: yeah oh look a little <laughs> higher oh no that's not reading do it like this there is something weird going on there that's pretty fucked up so
0: and it's something that apparently carried over into real life people like traveled to that location to solve the mystery of this fictional event which i I don't know how much of that is like overplayed in like press either for like a tourism thing or just like publicity for the the book um for the joan Lindsay estate but um I, i do find that interesting that at least some people there is some real conspiracy theory progenation from this and I kind of get it. Like, the movie is, like, super ambiguous. So you kind of want to, like, come up with some sort of, like, satisfying explanation. But it, like, like we've said a thousand times, it's better left as a question.
2: So I just briefly wanted to bring this up because I thought it was really interesting. Is the girls get up to the mountain and, you know, the first thing they do is they shed their shoes. They shed their gloves. They start, you know, walking around barefoot. And we see this, like, really untamed, like, sort of character about them. And then we found out Miss McCraw was seen running around in, like, her underwear, basically. And the line that stuck with me was about the swans and how they wouldn't last, you know, a day out in the bush. And, yeah, I think it's, it's, like, a really weird, like, these girls get as far away from civilization as possible and are just free to to be even though it's dangerous.
0: Especially since it starts off with them being tied into all their corsets and like putting on all their like gear to go out on the picnic. So you start off with like all that constriction and like layered armor and then immediately you go out to the rock and um they like shed all that stuff and
1: rejoin nature in some way or another. There's something interesting that's going on in the way that the cake is being sort of crawled all over by the ants, their St. Valentine's Day cake that they take with them on this picnic, right? Yeah. Where we get this really long close-up shot of the cake and the ants sort of crawling all over it, which could be read as an implication that because of the newness of the hanging rock structure, just a million years old, as opposed to like, other structures, which are, you know, as old as, as the hills themselves, literally, that maybe there's something created to attract and trap about the picnic, about the hanging rock itself as like a possible interpretation or perhaps. But either way, the girls themselves are the ants who are drawn to this rock. And they are shedding civilization as they go uh, and becoming more animalistic in nature There's a line that's clearly drawn between the ants and the people because as the girls climb the rock itself, they look down and they have their kind of um, hairy lime in the third man moment where they're like, look at them down there, so insignificant like ants, right?
0: And they even say, uh, we, we are just a dream within a dream in that climb too. Like they get really philosophical right before they disappear. It's like they're transcending this plane.
1: As a, an Australian film, it does contain a lot of actors that I don't think I've ever seen in anything else, except for Jackie Weaver, who I have seen in other things. Most recently, she was in a, an Australian political thriller series, because you know I love those, called Secret City. Uh, she plays a senator in that, like a real ball-busting Australian senator who is at the center of um, a political cover-up. So... Um, if anyone's interested in that I think it's still on Netflix and I highly recommend it
0: and speaking of that Australian connection too like I saw this listed as a cornerstone of the Australian new wave I've never heard those three words in that order before. <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> I've heard of a lot of film waves but
0: immediately I thought of like Mad Max but like what else would there be you know like
1: there's the dry- dead-end drive-in from oh i heard
0: that one's good i've never seen it
1: 1986 i i'm not 100 percent certain it is good i have a vhs copy that i've tried to watch multiple times but it, the condition is in it's in is just makes it impossible but also like i don't know uh anything with um what's his name yahoo serious when i
0: think of australian movies usually i think of like 80s over-the-top horror stuff like kind of like Razorback. Or I think yeah. of, like, the 90s wave of, like, Muriel's Wedding and...
2: Crocodile Strictly Dundee. Ballroom.
0: <laughs> yeah. And everyone's favorite transphobe, <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> um, uh. But yeah, I, I feel like I have more to investigate, because if Picnic and Hanging Rock is Australian new wave, I, I want more
1: of that in my life. Have you ever seen Dead Calm?
0: Oh, yeah. That one's great. And that one's got kind of an eerie feeling, too. Like It, it is kind of a straightforward thriller in a lot of ways, but it's also, like, just got a very sinister, atmospheric vibe, too.
1: And there was a whole Yahoo serious thing going on, which I only know because of the Simpsons joke about it, where there's like a Yahoo serious film festival. And even in the, um, whichever episode that appears in, which is probably the Simpsons down under the writers on the show and the commentary for it are like, that doesn't make any sense anymore. That joke was <laughs> playing out even then.
0: Well, next week on the show, we're going to do a much more traditional set of thrillers and mysteries we're gonna do a whole episode on Jillian Flynn adaptations.
1: Ooh, I saw that you had watched the one with Charlize Theron. Yes, which has a really it has a it has a name that I can never remember because it's so it's such a generic title. What is that one called? Dark
0: Places.
1: Yeah, I mean, how the fuck could anyone ever remember <laughs> that?
2: I've read a lot of her books, and I actually haven't read that one.
1: The wild thing about
0: it to me and, like, why I picked that topic was that every novel she's written has been adapted as a TV show or a movie, and I find that fascinating. (laughs) Like, to have that level of, like, success rate in book-to-adaptation is unheard of in my head.
2: Yeah, especially as, like, as a crime writer, I wouldn't say that her stuff is very cookie-cutter, necessarily. I mean, there's always, like, the twist and things going on. But, you know, it's very dark, very cynical and I feel like, a way that doesn't usually get adapted very well. So it's, it's interesting to me, too.
1: I remember watching Dark Places very early on in quarantine, and I was really impressed by it. It was much more depressing than her other works that I've seen adapted. I mean, they're all kind of, like, dark, but Dark Places was the one that was the most just, like, unrelenting in its... I don't want to say darkness, but I guess that is the word that I'm looking for.
0: I would say it's humorless in a way that her other adaptations are not. Yes. <laughs> but that might be uh, showing my hand a little too early.
1: Before we close out, I do want to say uh, the last time that Brandon and I talked, we talked about Undiscovered Country, uh, Star Trek Six, and we were talking about how great Christopher Plummer was in that role as General Chang. And of course, this week, he did pass away, so... Rest in peace to a real one on that front. I don't know if anybody else wants to wants to say a word for Christopher Plummer. Uh, I loved Undiscovered Country, and of course, Knives Out was great.
2: I was gonna say uh, Knives Out. I realized he had died in his age, and I was like, oh my gosh, like he was a, gotta be like eighty eight or eighty nine in Knives Out. Like what a legend, just straight up till the end
0: and just constantly working. Yeah, like I, I feel like I've seen him a lot recently. Uh, and had to be like reminded of what his older work was because i you know just thought of him as a contemporary actor in a lot of ways (laughs) so yeah kind of kind of a shame the last time i saw him was buried under all that klingon makeup but he
1: doesn't okay he doesn't have that much on they gave him very little (laughs) (laughs) that voice cuts through too yeah he got to shout shakespeare while wearing klingon garb and do that don't wait for the translation answer me now joke and i do love i just love that he was like absolutely not even going to fuck around and learn more than like two lines in klingon they just do the whole hunt for red october thing pretty much right away where he's like you know cop bra, bra, and then just immediately it's just like i'm christopher Plummer, right like he just was not gonna play that game and i love it
0: you know boomer the uh other most recent movie i watched christopher Plummer in was i watched star crash which was the oh, star wars knockoff that marjo gortner's in oh um, wow <laughs> yeah this year, I've only seen Christopher Plummer in space, so hopefully that's where he is now.
1: <laughs> oh man. He was the real he was the real national treasure. Wait, no, you watched Dracula 2000 recently? Oh yeah, I did. Well that was last year, but yeah oh okay, fair enough. It feels it feels like it was only yesterday.:
0: You know what? I said last year that was hundred percent in 2019, but <laughs>
2: whatever. We've all wiped 2020 from our collective memory. I feel like 2020 is our hanging rock, really. Like, if you were to ask me, oh, what were you doing at the beginning of the year? I don't know.
1: Yeah, let's just press reset on this whole thing. I've even decided I'm not even going to count the past four years. So I'm actually turning 30 again this year. Isn't that exciting? I'm going to be 30 again. Oh, wow. (laughs) Not 34 at all. Yeah,
2: look at you.
1: Happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you all later.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Resist giving my goodbye. Drive my car into the ocean. You think I'm dead, but I say.